we would like to offer our respects to the traditional elders of all generations upon whose lands this podcast has been created, including the Camaragal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to extend that respect and recognition to any First Nations listeners. How well do you think you know someone? Maybe your initial impressions are all wrong. What if their real stories are more interesting, more amazing and more surprising than you ever expected? This is Let Me Tell You from SBS Voices. I'm Caitlin Chang. And I'm Sarah Malik, And we are your hosts as we hear the unexpected stories behind ordinary people's lives. All of these stories were originally written for SBS Voices, Australia's home of diverse storytelling. But they were so good, we thought they deserved to be spoken out loud. Today we hear from Nadine Shamali, who shares an interesting phenomenon, the different ways there are to come out to your community and family. Yeah, I love in this story how Nadine reveals how she approached telling her family about her queerness. It's more of a sideways approach and really different from the traditional coming out stories that we usually hear. Yeah, and I think this one will really resonate with other queer kids of colour, the story she reads today. Um, So Nadine reveals what it's like to be a young person experimenting with her first kiss with a woman and trying to dip her family's toes in her queer world. Sounds good. So here is Nadine reading Growing Up in the 1990s, Lesbians Were Never Lebanese. I knew Australian boys didn't go for girls like me. They wanted the tiny white girl that looked like Kate Moss, not the girl that looked like a Lebanese Kate Sobrano. I know this because that tiny white girl was my best friend in her denim shorts and bleached blonde hair. (laughs) I would wear long dresses, glitter through my pitch black hair and dark lipstick. I had acrylic nails 20 years before they were cool and wore way too much eyeliner. I looked like an ethnic goth. I wasn't a trendsetter, certainly not in a time where girls wore floral skirts with docks and flannelette shirts when heroin chic and waifs, grunge and beach blondes were in. I was curvy and could not fit into their straight up and down clothes without busting every button. White boys didn't know how to take me. I was very femme and exotic looking, but exotic wasn't popular yet. Boys my age weren't attracted to my big curves and bigger gold hoop earrings, well before the Kardashians brought them back. So, when a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. A world where I could explore who I was outside of the expectations of the world around me. But it was really confusing. I became a teenager in the 1990s, a time where lesbians were called dyke, and the worst insult you could use was lemon. Women were just starting to come out, and almost none of them were femme. Melissa Etheridge professed she had a female partner. Ellen DeGeneres came out on Oprah, and Katie Lang sat in a barber's chair to be shaved by Cindy Crawford in a swimsuit. You liked men, or you liked women? There were no out bisexuals, and there was nothing in between. The word queer hadn't been reclaimed yet. It was a word that was spat out only as an insult. 
In my own culture, your identity as a woman was defined by your femininity. My aunts would tell me to never leave the house without lipstick or high heels if I wanted to be respected. Lesbians were never Lebanese. My Middle Eastern community was too conservative for me. My Lebanese cousins lived at home till they met the person they were going to marry. I, on the other hand, sported blue hair, liked heavy metal and left home young. I was studying film, a completely irresponsible career choice without a future, according to my family. They did not understand my black boots, my love of music festivals and obsession with foreign film. None of the boys in my community wanted me and I did not want any of them. In my late teens, I volunteered for a youth mental health service. They flew a bunch of kids to Sydney for a youth forum. That experience changed my life. I met someone that had a real and personal lasting impact. His name was Joe Elias. He was a staff member supervising us. He was in his mid-twenties, a handsome, educated professional living in Newtown. He was an Arab with a visible tattoo, which was incredibly rebellious in the late 90s for the child of Lebanese migrants. And he was openly gay. I wanted to ask him every question under the sun. Do your parents know? Have they accepted you? Do you have a boyfriend? Don't you want babies? Where do you live? What are your puppies' names? I remember the puppies because one afternoon we swung by his home to let the dogs outside. I remember clearly that night, laying in bed, dreaming of a future where I could be like Joe, where I would have a home and someone that loved me for who I was. And pets. I'm not sure what Joe made of my excitement, but he treated me with respect, answering all my questions. Joe was a unicorn to me. He was the first gay person of colour that I had ever met. He was certainly the first Arab queer I had ever met. He looked like me. He had dark hair and eyes, skin that tanned easily with an olive undertone and a huge welcoming smile. Joe was open, patient and caring. I didn't come out to him, but I met someone that wasn't straight, that I could identify with. I asked him if there were other Arab gay people and he laughed, of course, but not many were out, even in Sydney. I came home to my family and told my mother all about this remarkable Lebanese man, how he was so inspiring and educated, how he was sweet and kind and he happened to be gay. My mum said that she was happy I met someone that worked so hard to succeed and that he seemed like a good person. Through meeting Joe, I was able to talk to my family about sexuality and show them that normal, beautiful, everyday Arabs were sometimes gay. 20 years later, I messaged Joe out of the blue and he remembered me. I thanked him for being so brave, for being that person that opened up about who he was. I still don't really know what my sexuality is. It's been fluid over the years, but we have all kinds of rainbows behind us. I no longer needed a label and I no longer needed to identify a certain way. The world is so different and diverse to what it was when I was growing up. I revel in the fact that I live in an era that has seen real progress for queers. Thanks to people like Joe, 
queer people of colour, queer people like me. That was Nadine Chamali reading her piece, Growing Up in the 90s, Lesbians Were Never Lebanese. Welcome to the show, Nadine. Thank you so much, Sarah. And Caitlin, hi. Hello. Thank you for that beautiful reading. Pleasure. It was such an intimate and heartfelt piece. Why did you want to write the piece? That's a really good question. Um, I guess I just wanted to share an experience in hope that someone else reading it would be able to identify with it. I could tell a story that someone else needed to hear. It was a story that would have helped me when I was younger. So I just really wanted to put that out there and and hope that someone would listen and hear it and, you know, feel a little less alone. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, what was it like for you to grow up Lebanese and lesbian in that era? So I wasn't fully lesbian. You know, in the piece I'm queer um, and I say that, you know, I'm still not sure what my sexuality is. I'm 41 and I don't know, you know, I'm flip-flopping everywhere and that's okay. Um... It was really strange, I guess, because there was all these new things. There was Katie Lang being shaved by Cindy Crawford and then seeing Ellen come out. And, like, Ellen was the first really public lesbian, which is kind of so strange now to think back there was a time when there was one lesbian on TV, like one, singular. It was this groundbreaking stuff in a way and it was kind of confusing. Am I meant to look like this? Am I meant to act like this? Am I meant to present a certain way or think a certain way? And the reality is now there are actually no rules at all. You can do whatever the hell you want. But back then, because it was so new to me, I guess, I wanted to fit into boxes. I wanted to do it right. Yeah, gosh. Um, And, you know, there's that scene that you paint of kissing a girl for the first time, Mm -hmm. which is a life-transforming moment for you. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? What what was that like? Um, It was funnily in the bathroom of a nightclub um, called Mary Street in Brisbane, which was Thursday night, dollar drinks, student night, and it was really, really out of nowhere. She just kind of pushed me against the wall and gave me a smooch, and I was just like, what the hell is happening? It was really exciting and and really lovely and, you know, full of giggles and sweet and everything. But afterwards was really confusing. Am I gay? Am I straight? What's going on? Who do I tell? And she was, of course, the person that I would tell because she was right there and, you know, she kind of understood what I was experiencing. But, you know, even now at 41 and, and 20 odd years later, I still feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about it on radio and knowing that my family is listening, you know, my community is listening. It's really confronting. And I'm an adult. It's fine. But it is. It's so funny that those things, maybe I haven't shaken them as much as I'd like to think. So you're being so personal and vulnerable in this piece. And in the story, you talk about telling your mom about your new friend, Joe as kind of a way to test the waters, I suppose. And you know, not talk about queerness about yourself specifically, but just kind of to put it out there. Um, How challenging is it for you to write about these things that are so personal when you know that your family might read the story or listen to this? I think There's a certain age, there's a certain time in your life where you care less. You know, I've got a divorce under my belt, I'm a single mum with a child. In the context of things, being kissed by a girl on my 18th probably isn't that crazy. But 
It still is. I've worked really hard in therapy, funnily, on putting in boundaries on what I will and won't talk about with my family and my community. And this is one of my no-go zones. Um, To me, this is uh, a type of work and it's really important to me. So I just point blank won't discuss it. And thankfully, my family has read those signs and signals very loud and clear and won't broach it with me. But 20 years ago, they definitely wouldn't have respected that boundary. It would have been very different. I would have been seen as the baby and that they needed to protect me and look after me and do all of these things. But as I've gotten older and I'm no longer the baby, you know, I'm a very firm, this has nothing to do with you. This is my life. And I'm in a really privileged position to be able to do that. Not everyone has that opportunity. I definitely think that only opening up about what you're really comfortable opening up about is so important. Choosing who you invite into your life rather than having to come out and put it all on the table for everyone. They don't need to know about me. I'm not talking to them about me. I'm not going and sitting down at dinner on mum and dad's house and going, this is what my sexuality is and this is what, you know, you need to know. I need to come out to you. I don't need to do anything like that. It's none of their business. It's my personal life and I'll share as much or as little as I want. Yeah, I guess it's that whole kind of coming in instead of coming out. Inviting in and welcoming people to your life. I still make jokes. You know, I often will kind of slip in cheekily to my brother that I've kissed more girls than him. Uh, He just kind of like, you know, shakes his head and kind of, you know, ah, you're you, Nadine. Um, Because I've managed to kind of create this identity of being the naughty one or whatever it is. I'm not naughty, but, you know, the cheeky one. Um, Yeah. So over time, using humour is really, really helpful as well. I really love your piece because I think that it would resonate with a lot of queer people of colour because there might not be this big coming out moment uh, that we see in the mainstream around, you know, uh, approaching sexuality with your family. You approach it in a more sideways manner with them. Is that something that's been how you've dealt with your sexuality with your family in a more subtle way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, that choosing what I say and what I do and what I come out with is really important. And I think in a lot of, you know, inverted commas, traditional cultures, maintaining that level of respect where I'm not going to put it right in front of them and do whatever, you know, I've brought girlfriends home to family dinner without saying this is a girlfriend. This is a friend and they're with me and I treat them exactly the same as I would bringing home a male partner. Um, I don't kiss them in front of my parents and, you know, act out and start making out on the couch and rolling around because in my culture that would be disrespectful. So I just would do the same thing but with a friend, you know, a female friend, a male friend, whoever I was bringing home. Um, There's a Sydney therapist called Sekne Hamoud Bennett and she actually developed, um, wrote a piece called Hazima Bilhayete where she talks about working with a particular client and she developed the idea of inviting in rather than coming out. And I think that's such a really important piece. And I remember when I found this piece of work, it all kind of made sense to me. Sometimes coming out can put you in danger, can put your family in danger. And I don't mean physical danger, but sometimes they could be ostracized. They could be talked about. There could be gossip. People won't come to dinner. They won't talk to them. So, you know, sometimes it's a lot about self-protection and inviting in rather than coming out is a really key way to protect yourself, I guess. Gosh, that's that's so extraordinary because you have such a light touch with your pieces and you're able to broach serious topics with a bit of levity. Just listening to what you've been saying now, it must have been extraordinarily difficult to be having these confused feelings at that age in an environment like you've described. Yeah, it was terrifying. And it 
it still is. Um, this is so uncomfortable for me doing this podcast. Like, as you know, it's funny and all of that, but it is. It's it's such a funny thing. I hope that the next generations will hear this and will hear it and become more comfortable. It's something that's part of their daily life. Their parents will hear it. They'll hear me talking about it. It won't be as um, hidden away. Um, it'll be a lot more familiar. And that slow familiarization with ideas and concepts, I think is really key to changing culture. So yeah, it's still scary, but lovely and exciting and cool and fun. So I really think using humor is so important. I really think that a joke can fix anything. You know, my mum and I used to scream at each other when I was a teenager and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd look at her with a cheeky smile and she would just crack, you know, and that tiny bit of humour is so vital, I think, to really important, serious discussions. And so what kind of responses have you been getting? And how do you feel when you, you know, get these messages from young queer Arab people? Oh, I love it. Um, You know, besides loving attention. um, No, I love being being a safe person for these people that would like to come forward and have a chat. I love being able to offer insight into what I've done rather than offer advice for them because everyone's situation is different. I can't tell someone else what to do. I can't tell you whether you should come out or shouldn't. I can just tell you what I did and I hope that that will in turn let them explore what they'd like to do and what their options are. But it's really beautiful. There's this real kinship and connection. Even when you're on Twitter and you see someone follow you and you click on their profile and it says queer Arab or queer person of colour or something, you know, in their profile, there's this immediate like, that's my cousin now. Um, I will protect you no matter what. Um, And it's just this really beautiful kinship. We are a community and we are united by something and not just our sexuality or not just our, um, you know, cultural background, but the things that layer on top of each other bring us together. So I love it. Please all message me anytime. Um, Yeah. Uh, I just, I love hearing that. Um, And you talk about the power of visibility, you know, just seeing someone who looks like you, who sounds like you, who is a safe space. And it would have been so easy for you to, like many people, to go into the margins, to go underground, to not talk about this. How liberating has it been to be able to be fully yourself in the way that you are in your writing and in your life? Look, for the first 15 years after that kind of, you know, first girl kiss, I was kind of hiding. I didn't come out. I wasn't talking about who I was. I was still me. It's been really liberating, but it's been also really scary. I've had a lot of anxiety about what will people think for my parents. I I love my parents and that's a really, you know, cultural thing. I'm very attached to them and I don't want anyone to hurt them, even if that means at my expense that I stay a little quieter about myself. You know, it's really important to me that everyone in my community is looked after, including my parents and cousins and sisters and brothers and everyone. So it's a double-edged sword. But the fact that I did get to kind of my mid to late 30s and I had kind of had this marriage and divorce and these things and I still managed to weather all of that and still my community loved me. You know, that I wasn't pushed out. I wasn't shunned. All the things that I expected to really get in trouble for were more like, are you okay? You shouldn't have done that kind of thing. You know, that gave me the bravery to kind of do 
this. But there are some days where I think, oh, I'm just going to be really quiet today. I don't want to, you know. Um, I'm really lucky that my parents are relatively open-minded, especially now. Having me as a daughter for 40 years has probably helped. Um <clears throat> But um, that is a real privilege. Not everyone has that. And what do you think 18-year-old Nadine would think about who you are and where you are today? Um, She would think I'm so cool. Um, (laughs) But also be really mortified. Just be like, what are you doing? I can't believe you're talking about these things. Um, You know, kind of ducking, expecting a shoe to smack me uh, as I walk past (laughs) or something like that. Um, I think she would be a little bit mortified, a little bit horrified, really excited. Um, You know, being open and talking about my life has given me this opportunity to talk to SBS about myself and my life. And, you know, to to an 18-year-old, former refugee, migrant child, that meant so much. You know, I can't believe I'm where I am now just by talking about myself. So she would be really excited and happy, I think. Um, We're we're excited and happy to have (laughs) have you here. And I'm just looking back at that 18-year-old girl, you know, what were you like? So I've actually become a lot more like 18-year-old Nadine now. Um, I feel like I'm more myself than I've ever been. I feel like 18-year-old Nadine was the really, in a way, a really authentic me. She was really excited and she was really bubbly and she loved everything and she kind of hadn't been hurt or jaded or, you know, all of those experiences that come about. And now as I've kind of gotten to 40, I've shared a lot of that and I'm back to that person that I was. I'm actually in real life an introvert. I'm very quiet in real life, which people don't believe. Yeah, right? Um, I am. I'm super shy and quiet. I can go a week without talking to anyone, no problem at all. And that's who she was. She was a little book nerd that just kind of had her head down and was working really hard, but was really full of life and bubbly. And I'd like to think that now I'm that person again. I've worked really hard to get back to being that person. You know, 20s, you kind of, you travel, you see the world and you have some heartbreak. And then I did this big period where I really wanted to assimilate with all of my little indie friends and my punk friends. So I got rid of my gold earrings and stopped doing my nails and kind of had this like cute little fringe and Converse sneakers. And, um, you know, I really let go of who I had been when I was younger to kind of fit in. And now... Yep, don't care again. I'm really happy just being me. So I don't know. I'm also excited to see where the next 10 years go. I love that, you know, like I, I love that sharing the complexities of family and how it's an evolution. It's a process. You know, you've lived a kind of a nonconformist life and you've shown that you can do that and be loved, be happy, be yourself. Is that the message that you want to send to other queer kids of colour who want to know how to be able to do that? I think so. I think um, my biggest word of advice is just take your time. No one can make you anyone else. No one can take away your identity. No one can take away your sexuality. No one can make you do anything. Who you are in your heart is never going to change, no matter what anyone around you thinks or says or does. So you don't owe anyone an explanation. You don't owe anyone to explain your identity. If you want to come out and be loud and proud and feel safe to do so, brilliant. Give me a call. I'll bake you a cake. But if you want to take your time and just be quiet and figure yourself out, that's totally, totally fine too. There's no hurry. You're still going to be the same person at 40 that you were at 18, no matter what happens in the middle. 
Yeah, no pressure. Yeah, take it yeah. easy. Um, I love that. Thank you, Nadine, for sharing your insights and your wisdom. And I really do think that this will be game changing for a lot of people who may still be struggling with a lot of these issues. Thank you so much, guys. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Nadine. And that's it for this episode. Stick around for next episode where we meet Benjamin Muir. His students know him as a PhD expert on medieval literature, but he also has another identity you might not expect. I, I think the students like me, but I also think they find me bizarre to look at already because they're expecting someone sort of much more distinguished looking. Let Me Tell You is produced by Sarah Malik and Caitlin Chang with audio by Jeremy Wilmot and Max Gosford. Our executive producers are Natalie Hambly and Danielle Teutsch. If you'd like to read more of our stories, head to the SBS Voices website at sbs.com.au forward slash voices. Listener.